It's in that hope alone that we come to worship God this morning. Let's then open His Word that He would teach us. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Philippians 3. This is the third and the last week that we'll be spending in Philippians 3, but it's worth reading the chapter again to remember where we are. Philippians 3 then, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of God through the Apostle Paul. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, Join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. So far, the word of God. 
As we reflect on what we've read, let's sing together from Psalm 27, stanza 2 and 6. The text that we'll be focusing on this morning are the verses 17 through uh, 17 of chapter 3 through verse 1 of chapter 4. It's only a few verses, so we'd be helped by reading those verses over again if you would turn into your Bibles to Philippians 3, and we'll start at verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, as I mentioned, this is now the third time that we've read chapter 3 together. One of the younger catechism students asked me this this week, why do we always read Philippians every morning? So some of you may have to explain the nature of a series, but here we are in chapter 3 once again. And we're doing this so that we can get our heads into this chapter, especially since Last week we stepped away as we had a pulpit exchange, and we want to consider every verse from this chapter in its context, and so we read the whole chapter again to put ourselves in the right frame of mind. But if you are like this student and finding it a little repetitive, let me just remind you of what Paul says in verse 1, to write the same things to me is no trouble for me and is safe for you. And so I would argue the same goes then for reading the same things over again. It's good for us also to remember that these are what Paul would have seen as as possibly his last words to the Philippian congregation. He knew that that very well might have been the case, that he might not see these brothers again. So in this chapter and the next chapter, he's using what what might be the last opportunity he ever has to speak to the Philippians, and he's trying to leave them with the most important things that they need to hear and to drive those things home. That's why chapter 3 begins with the word, finally. It's like Paul thought that he was getting to the end, and now we're in his last words, and it ends up going on for another couple chapters because there are so many important things he wants to leave with the Philippians in case he never sees them again. And so that means that for us, this chapter should be worth our careful, thoughtful reflection. If these were Paul's last words to the Philippians, certainly they're important for us to reflect on as well today. And in the part of the chapter that, that we want to focus on today... 
Paul sets forward two radically different ways of being a Christian, two totally different things that the word Christian might mean, one of which is not actually Christian at all, though some who called themselves Christians were living that way. And he wants the Philippians, and he wants us then, to think about this very carefully. He wants them to be able to see the difference between these two ways of living and these two ways of calling yourself a Christian and to resolve to stay far away from that definition of Christian which has nothing at all to do with Christ. And so our our goal for this morning then is to consider those two ways of life that Paul sets forward and to fix our eyes on the true way, the right way to live as a Christian. There's, There's a very clear flow to the passage, so let me lay that out. In verse 17, we're going to spend some time on that verse, Paul simply encourages the Philippians to follow his example. Then in verses 18 to 19, Paul points to a negative example. This is the wrong way to live as a Christian. It's an example to beware of. And he focuses in those verses especially on the motivation of the heart that's behind that way of life. The things that certain people who call themselves Christians are in fact living for and the patterns that they're living by. And then in verses 20 to 21, Paul reminds them of the right way to live, which is also in 17. And Paul reminds them of the right motivation and the right patterns of life that they should be adopting instead. So the flow of the passage is positive, follow my example, then negative, watch out for this example, and then positive again, uh, showing the right way to live as a Christian. And the whole point of this is to show how, how radically different these two ways of living as a Christian are. So let's start then in in verse 17 with the positive. Paul begins by encouraging the Philippians to follow his example and the example of others, other Christians who lived by that same pattern of life. Verse 17, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. I've mentioned, I mentioned this before when we looked at uh, Timothy and Epaphroditus, but it's worth saying again, notice how important it is in the Christian life to have examples to follow. There's no substitute for that in Christian discipleship. As elders, we've, we've spent some time, a number of times, talking about how to walk alongside those in our wards and to especially help the youth and, and to disciple them. And for that to happen, we need examples. The elders themselves need to be examples. And in this church, we need other men and women to be examples. Also in this church, we, w- we want this to be a place where unbelievers could walk in the door and hear the gospel preached and become Christians, committing their lives to Christ. And for that to happen, we need not just faithful preaching, but also good examples that people can observe and imitate. 
The same is true for our young people as, as they grow up. We want to see them growing up and loving the Lord and committing their lives to Him. But if that's going to happen, they will need examples from the rest of us. Christian discipleship requires not only reading and preaching of Scripture, but also Christian examples, examples of Christian maturity for people to follow. And Paul understood that. Faith, yes, faith comes from hearing the Word, but learning the Christian life and developing Christian priorities, that will not happen without Christian examples to follow and to imitate. And so if you're busy, as many of us are, with with unbelieving friends or with with friends that are outside the church working to disciple them and to train them up, or if you're training up your children in the fear and instruction of the Lord, as Paul commands us in Ephesians 6, if you're busy with those things, then understand this well. Your example is essential to that process of discipleship. These, these people are looking at your example. They're imitating your priorities. Yes, the Word is essential as you bring it to them and implement it in their lives, but your example is also essential. And and this, this principle is true for all Christians. Even older, mature Christians benefit from the example that, that they have in one another. Remember, Paul was writing to the whole church. And yes, most of them, as a missionary church, were, were relatively new Christians, but probably not all of them. And even as experienced Christians, we need examples in our midst. So Paul says very clearly, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. Fix your eyes on them, he says. In other words, look at them carefully, learn from them, imitate them, work to build relationships with them so that you can mature through them. And so as Christians, especially those of us who are new Christians or young Christians, we need to fix our eyes and see the love and the commitment and the sacrifice of the older, mature Christians in our midst. And having those examples is essential for our growth in, in faith and for our maturity. So take Paul's instruction to heart. All of you who want to grow in your faith, find Christian examples in this church and imitate them. So that's Paul's instruction to the Philippians. Join in imitating me. Now, the thing that he wants them to imitate him in is the life and priorities that he just finished describing. That that exhortation doesn't just come out of the blue. It comes right after the first half of the chapter. And that's why we read this chapter over again. He, He wants them to learn and imitate specific things in his life, such as Philippians 3, 1 through 11, his determination to have no other righteousness but that which is found in Christ, his willingness to let go of all of his own self-righteousness, any appeal he has in himself 
to, to God to be righteous and to make his appeal entirely on Christ. That takes learning. That takes discipline. Paul talks about straining forward. It takes effort to let go of your own righteousness. And so that's one thing he urges them to imitate in his life. Also, his determination to share in Christ's sufferings and become like him in his death. That's from, I believe, verse 11 of, of chapter 3. So that, too, takes effort and, and some straining forward. It's hard to take up your cross and follow Christ. It's hard to, to, to make the sacrifices that Christ calls us. Paul was busy doing that. He urges the Philippians, look at that example and learn from it. Imitate it. You might think also of Paul's uh, placing all of his hope in the resurrection. He talks about that being his entire hope, losing everything in order to attain to the resurrection. Uh, That's a priority that he wants them to learn and imitate. All of those are, are very radical priorities and commitments. And so you can see just from reading that in Paul how important it must be then to have examples of people uh, that, that have those priorities and commitments. Taking up your cross, following Christ, is not something that we do naturally. We can read the Lord Jesus' instructions, whoever would be my disciple would take up his cross and follow me. But without examples in our midst, most of us probably would not even know what that looks like in 2017 in Elora. And even if we had some intuition of what that looked like without the encouragement of watching fellow Christians actually put that into practice, many of us would find it much, much harder to put into practice ourselves. We need to see it happening in one another's lives. And so for the Philippians, you can only imagine it was Paul's example among them during the time he spent with them, his example together with his preaching that had made such a deep impact on them in the first place, such that they gave up their former lives and became believers and also gave their lives to supporting his mission. It wasn't only his preaching. It certainly was that. It was also, though, his example, the commitments and priorities that they could witness in him. And so now in in what might be his final words to that church, Paul encourages them, join together in following my example and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. You'll notice also in that uh, verse, just one last point from that verse before we leave, um, that the, the word example is in the singular even though Paul is writing about multiple people. He, he talks about the, the people who walk according to the singular example that you have in us. And, and the reason the example or the pattern is singular, even though the people are plural, is because it's the one same Spirit who dwelt in all of them, who produces one consistent pattern of life. Uh, They are different Christians with different backgrounds, different personalities, some of them in different circumstances, uh, also coming from different family and, and social backgrounds. But you find in Paul and Timothy and Peter and the other disciples and apostles, you find one single 
consistent pattern of life. It's one of the amazing things as you read through Scripture as well. You can pick up the letters of Paul, and then you can take the letters of Peter. Then you could read James or the letters of John. All these different men, and some of them very different. Paul was a scholar, an academic, a Pharisee. That was his background. Peter was a fisherman. And yet you find one single consistent pattern of faith. And that's what Paul urges them then to look towards. Look to the examples you see around you, but notice in those examples, not just the differences, those are reflective of personality and background, but especially notice the single consistent pattern of Christian faith. And this is important then for the Philippians to understand because they were not all of them suffering the same things that Paul was going through. Not all of them were in jail. Uh, Not all of them were missionaries. But all of them were or should have been living for the ultimate goal of being counted together with Christ as Paul was. All of them were setting their hope just like him on the resurrection. And so they had one single consistent example to follow. That's the positive exhortation then from this text. Then Paul points to a negative example. Verse 18, he says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. So this, this is uh, meant as a reason to be diligent to follow his example. Because you, you notice verse 18 begins with the word for. So it's, it's giving a reason for what he has just uh, urged them to do. Follow our example for or because there are many who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. In other words, you need to be diligent to follow good examples because there are many ways that you can go wrong in the faith and there are many bad examples out there that you would otherwise end up following. Now there's a lot of debate about who exactly Paul is talking about. Uh, and, and there's no way to nail that down uh, for certain. The important thing to recognize is that Paul says they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ, which suggests it's primarily their way of life, their walking, that makes them enemies of the cross. Not necessarily their doctrine or their teaching, though that might have been the case as well, but it's primarily their walk, their behavior that... Uh, and their way of life that makes them enemies of the cross. So understand this well, then, brothers and sisters. Living in sin or accommodating sin in your life uh, opposes everything that the cross stands for. The one who lives in sin lives as not just someone who doesn't care about the cross, but who is indeed an enemy of the cross, who opposes the cross. And that's because the cross stands there in the center of our faith as the proof of God's absolute hatred for sin and Christ, Jesus Christ's utter determination to go to the extreme measure to, to free us from our sin. So if someone then calls themselves a Christian, but then embraces or accommodates sin, in their life, they make themselves an enemy 
of what everything that the cross stands for. They're opposing the very thing that Christ came to die for, which is to condemn sin and to free us from it. Now, it's clear that that then is what was going on with, with these people that Paul is describing. You can see that very clearly in verse 19. It's all about their walk, their behavior, their way of life. They might have also made themselves enemies of the cross, also in the sense that they were rejecting the way of the cross, the way of suffering and self-denial that Paul has been describing throughout the letter to the Philippians and that Christ himself called us to. Given, given the context, the, the greater context of Philippians, that, that's been what Paul has been coming back to over and over again, the way of the cross, the way of self-denial, being made like Christ in his suffering and even in his death. It seems that Paul is also then thinking about that as well. So not only were they living in sin, which is clear enough from verse 19, but they were also rejecting the way of self-denial and suffering to which Christ called them. And apparently then they, they believed instead that the Christian life is one of earthly pleasure, that the cross gives them license to indulge in sin instead of sharing in Christ's sufferings and putting their hope in the resurrection. So they wanted the benefits of, the, of being Christians without any of the cost. They wanted to be counted with Christ without actually having to follow him in the way of the cross, the way of self-denial and suffering. Well, Paul has four things to say about this group of people. First, he says their end is destruction. And, and by that, he doesn't just mean that destruction is eventually going to catch up with them. That's certainly true. But the word he uses for end when he says their end is destruction, it's a word that has to do with a, a natural or inherent goal. So the, the goal is inherent to the journey. It's like if you go to school, the end is graduation. It's not just it just doesn't just happen to be graduation. That's the thing that you're working towards. Same as if you're raising children, the end or the goal is mature adults. That's the goal that you're aiming towards. In this case, Paul says the kind of life that they're choosing to live now has only one possible ending. It's like a goal that they seem to be working towards, which is destruction. So they're growing up in maturity as far as destruction goes. They're learning the way of destruction. Everyone's life has a specific ending that their life is headed towards. And you can see what the destination is by looking at the journey. If you're living to be counted with Christ already here, the destination at the end of the road is to be counted with Christ then and to be raised with him. If you're living now for things that will be destroyed, then your destination will be to be destroyed with them. The ending is inherent then to the journey. It's a lot the same idea that you find in in James 1, verse 15, where he says, Sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. The, the ending is inherent to the journey. Second, he says, their God 
is their belly. In other words, they're living for nothing but their appetites. They're living for immediate gratification. It's what they live for. It's what determines every decision that they make. It's their God. It's good to recognize that everyone has a God. Everyone worships something whether it's the true God or someone or something else. Third, he says, they, they glory in their shame. Uh, remember back in verse 3 of chapter 3, Paul said, we glory in Jesus Christ. That's, that's our glory. That's what we have to boast about. That's what makes this life with all of its suffering worth it, and not just worth it, but even glorious. It's Jesus Christ. That's what we have to boast in. But these so-called Christians who had chosen not to go the way of the cross or to deny themselves, they chose instead to live a life of sin and to pursue pleasure and privileges on earth in the name of Christ Paul says the only thing that they have left to glory in is their shame. It's, it's like them saying, come, join us. We're the church that allows you to sin. That's what we get to be proud of. It's glorying in the lowest, most shameful thing possible. It reminds me, incidentally, of uh, this week. Uh, most of you are aware of Hugh Hefner having passed away, and he was the, the founder of Playboy. And you, you watch the world around us glory in his shame, raising him up as a hero when all he has to boast about is, is shame. He, he indeed fits this description uh, to the T, uh, being one whose end is destruction, whose God is his appetites, and who glories in his shame. Well, fourth, Paul says, their minds are earthly, are set on earthly things. In other words, their whole orientation, call themselves Christians though they may, their whole orientation is earthly. Their goals and hopes and dreams are all entirely limited to this life, this earth. For them, the Christian faith is all about what you can get for yourself through the name of Christ. Christ exists to serve my pleasures and to realize my dreams. That's their approach to the Christian life. Now, obviously, this is a very relevant warning for us today as well, because that kind of Christianity is very much alive in our day as well. It's a health and wealth and prosperity gospel. Jesus Christ gives you victory to get what you want. He gives you your best life now. It's to using Christ to get what you desire for yourself for this earth and not instead for the life to come. And so, that kind of life, Paul says, has a mind that's set on earthly things. Uh, being a Christian is all about getting what you want here and now. It's amazing, if you, if you think about it, how quickly that kind of Christianity, which we see all around 
today, how quickly that kind of Christianity took off in Paul's day and came into existence. It's only a couple decades at the most after Paul had begun preaching the gospel, and already you have people taking the gospel message to mean instead freedom to sin, freedom to live an ungodly life, and to take God's promises to mean you can get whatever you want. You can understand why Paul says to them, I've told you many times and now tell you even with tears, that people are walking this way. It must have been so frustrating for Paul that as soon as he went out and began preaching the gospel, almost immediately people grabbed it and used it as a license to live in sin. So Paul warns the Philippians not to follow that example. That's the negative. And now then, Paul also... On, in, in verses 20 to 21, then, Paul returns to a positive exhortation. He's shown this way of life that calls itself Christian, but is not and has nothing to do with Christ. Now Paul shows us the true way to live as a Christian. He says in verse 20, On the contrary, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject even all things to himself. Now, it's really important to understand what Paul means when he says our citizenship is in heaven. Obviously, the contrast is with the last part of verse 19, where he says their minds are set on earthly things, and that kind of false Christianity has its, its mind entirely set on earthly pleasures and privileges in the here and now. And the reality that Paul says these people don't understand is that as Christians, our citizenship is not here on earth, it's in heaven. Now, we want to understand rightly what Paul means by citizenship. There's a reason that Paul uses the word citizenship here. Uh, and you might even remember a couple months ago when we started Philippians, we, we saw this idea already once in chapter 1, verse 27. Paul, Paul wrote there, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And the word that he used there for manner of life is almost exactly the same word as, as the word he uses here, which means citizenship. So they're very related words. Uh, then it meant to conduct yourself as a citizen. Here it's talking about citizenship as such. Um, and so we want to understand this idea of citizenship and why Paul uses it. If you know any Swiss citizens, you know that they're very proud of their citizenship, and, and rightly so. They, they take their citizenship very seriously. Americans do too, but they've got their own uh, distinctions that we won't go into. But, but Swiss citizens have great reason to be proud of, of their citizenship. When they go abroad, they have some of the best consulates in the world, and, and their consulates too go to great measures to make sure that their citizens are provided for and, and protected when they go abroad. 
And yet at the same time, so that's, that's the, the benefit of being a Swiss citizen. But also when, when Swiss citizens go abroad, usually, of course, we can't overgeneralize, but usually they also take that citizenship very seriously and they make sure that their conduct is worthy of Swiss citizenship. Well, that's the same idea that's here in, in, in uh, chapter 1, verse 27, and also now in chapter 3, verse 30. And there's a reason that Paul uses this metaphor of citizenship, because Philippi, as a city, had a very special status as a Roman colony, which means that it was a city that uh, it had been settled by, by retiring Roman soldiers, and so it had the status or the people that, that were born there, had the status of Roman citizens. It was a very special place as far as, as that region was concerned. Most of the cities there were not Roman colonies. And so the people generally in the culture in, in Philippi took their, their Roman citizenship very seriously. Very few cities had that kind of privileged status. And it meant that you would be protected wherever you went. If you went to Judea or somewhere else, you were a Roman citizen. And you can see this in the life of Paul when he gets arrested and then flogged. He, he says, do you indeed dare to flog a Roman citizen? And the people that, that beat him uh, trembled with fear because they realized that he was a Roman citizen. So you, it came with privileges, but it also came with responsibility to then live as a Roman citizen. And if you were a child growing up in the city of Philippi, your teachers would have told you this all the time. Now listen, little boy, little girl, you are a Roman citizen and you're going to act like one wherever you go. So that it would have been instilled in them already as, as they grew up. And so then Paul takes this idea and he tells the Philippians, listen, our citizenship is in heaven. In other words, the church here on earth, the same is true for Alora, the church here on earth is a colony of the, citizen, of the kingdom of heaven. And as such, it has all the special privileges that, that heavenly citizenship entails and all this, the unique obligations that heavenly citizenship entails. So if you consider that, you can hopefully see the contrast then with those that he describes in verse 19 who were living for the here and now. Their life showed them to be, if citizens, then traitors of the kingdom of heaven. They didn't live like citizens. They didn't live for their heavenly citizenship. They failed to understand that Christians are citizens of a different kingdom and a much greater kingdom. And so our lives as Christians ought to be ruled by a different standard than the rest of the world. And we, we seek as Christians different privileges and different rewards. The people in verse 19 were living for this earth. They weren't looking for anything greater than the privileges that they could get here and now. Paul says those are nothing. Those belong to an earthly citizenship that's falling or, or that's passing away. The, what we live for are the privileges of membership in the kingdom of heaven. Now, one thing that does not mean that Paul is not saying, and we should make sure we hear this well, Paul is not saying that the earth is not our home and that 
Things that happen on earth, therefore, don't matter. We need to understand this well because there are many Christians that go to the opposite extreme and, and get this wrong. Paul is not saying that things that happen on earth don't matter or even that we don't belong here on earth. Our, th- this earth is our home. This, we need to understand this, this well. This is a colony of heaven here on earth, and as such, it's our home. You think of uh, the time when Canada and the United States were colonies of, of, of Britain. They had the, the pride and the privilege of being British citizens, at least the Canadians did, but they, but they, they lived there in their homes in Canada or in the United States. And so it wasn't a a matter of their home still being off in Britain somewhere. They know this was their home. And the same is true for us as Christians. We live in a colony of heaven. And you'll notice Paul says then, our citizenship is in heaven, and from there we await a Savior. In other words, our Savior is coming from heaven to earth, not the other way Around Many Christians think of, of this life on earth as we're just waiting for the time when we're all going to be swept away to heaven and we can live forever there. No, heaven is coming here to earth. That's our hope as Christians. Uh, we're reading this backwards. If, if we think that Paul is saying that this earth is just going to hell in a handbasket and, and good thing at least we're citizens in heaven so we can get out before the, 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 the ship sinks. That's not the way that Paul is, is thinking. What Paul is saying is Christ has placed you here as citizens of his kingdom in his colony, and the fact that this colony is here is proof that the rest of the kingdom is coming, and Christ is going to colonize the whole earth. This is our home. Our citizenship is in heaven. That's where our passports are, are saved, but our, our lives are here on earth. And if we do die before Christ comes to this earth, which, you know, humanly speaking, seems to be more likely the case, then it's true that our souls, yes, will go to heaven for a time. Uh, and we can say they, they go to the motherland, so to speak, but that's only a temporary stay. They're ultimately going to come back to earth together with our raised bodies. And so our home is here on earth, and our ultimate hope is for the day when Christ will come here and transform, as Paul says, our bodies, when heaven and earth will be united again. And that, that distinction, that, that hope has implications for our lives here on earth. Some people read language like this, that our citizenship is in heaven, and they conclude that what happens on earth doesn't really matter. That's not at all Paul's point. Paul's point has to do with conduct. And if he's talking about conduct, he's talking about conduct here on earth. Christ is colonizing earth, and so what we do here on earth, we do in Christ's colony, and that matters before Christ. Now, that does mean we're not, like the people in verse 19, living for the here and now. But we are living in the here and now, and our lives here on earth ought to be ruled 
by our heavenly citizenship. So that's the relationship then between a heavenly citizenship and an earth and a life that is on earth. Both are important principles to, to keep in, in mind. Our life on earth is ruled by our citizenship in heaven, but we don't give up our life on earth simply because we have citizenship there in heaven. So that's the hope then that sustains Paul um, in, in his sufferings. It's knowing that he is doing the work of Christ as a citizen of Christ's kingdom. And that ought then also to be the hope that sustains us here on this earth, that Christ will come to finish his colonizing work. And when he does, he will also raise our fallen, broken, mortal bodies to be like his glorious body. And that's the point that Paul then finishes on in in the last verse in chapter 3. Um, Paul backs up his hope by saying, Christ will transform our bodies by the same power that, that he's used or that enabled him to subject all things to himself. In other words, we can be certain that Christ will change our bodies, that Christ will raise our bodies on the final day. Remember, that's what Paul's living for. That's his hope. We can be certain that Christ will do so because we can notice, we can see already now that he is subjecting all things to himself. Take a moment and think about what Paul is saying there. The reason you know that Christ will raise your body is because you can see his power at work already changing the world, subjecting all things to himself. Christ is busy in this world. He's changing our lives. He's changing our homes. He's transforming our communities. And he's at work bringing the gospel forward, changing not just communities, but even countries and ultimately the world. And all of that testifies to the fact that Christ is not only enthroned in heaven, but also busy building a kingdom on earth. And you need to know this for the sake of your own hope so that you can see Christ's power at work and know that he will also raise your bodies. This is why it's so valuable for the sake of sustaining your hope in your daily struggles against sin and against the works of darkness in your own life. It's so valuable for that reason that you have your eyes open to the work that Christ is doing in this world and and all around the world. So I would encourage you, get resources like, for example, World Magazine or other newsletters or Voice of the Martyrs that, that speak to the work that Christ is doing around the world so that you can have your eyes open to the transforming power of Christ because having your eyes on that, watching that, learning it, and staying up to date and involved in it strengthens your faith in your daily struggle that God has given you. Paul knew that the Philippians needed that kind of encouragement, and that's the the thing that Paul encourages them to look to and see, the power of Christ subjecting all things to himself. 
And, and if they can see Christ doing that in their lives, in the lives of others, in the work of Paul, in the mission work that he was doing, then they can be encouraged that Christ will finish his work in their own struggles as well. Many, many Christians today, because they're not praying the first three petitions of the prayer about God's uh, honor and God's name and God's kingdom, because they don't pray those three petitions, they find themselves doubting Christ's power regarding the last three petitions because their minds aren't set on the big picture. Christ taught us to pray those three and to pray them first, to pray the big global prayers first because it's in that context that we can be encouraged about Christ's power and Christ's work in the little things in our own lives. And I hope that that would also then be true of this congregation, that we're busy praying those three petitions, that we're busy involved in, the, in that work, and that we're following it and staying up to date with it through the resources that we have for the sake of our own faith and our own encouragement in our own daily struggles. Knowing what Christ and seeing what Christ is doing around the world, subjecting all things to himself, will greatly sustain your faith and buoy if that's how you pronounce that word, buoy up your hope. So then let me, let me conclude. Paul knows that these may, these may be his last words to the Philippians. And so he wants to leave them with the most important things that they need to hear. And so his first encouragement is, follow my example and the example that you have in the others among you and around me. Watch those Christians who live like Christ and live out of the gospel hope. And secondly, watch out for those Christians that don't, whose life and whose priorities and whose goals are entirely in this earth and whose lives are headed for destruction. Watch out for them. And then finally, remember who you are. Fix your eyes on the work that Christ is doing and on your citizenship in heaven as you live as a member of his colony here on earth. And so he concludes in in 4 verse 1, Therefore stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. And surely Paul would say the same to us. Amen.